I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting the Pentateuch. Our text is Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and Genesis 15. The story of Genesis begins with God creating a new environment called the heavens and the earth. He created this environment for humankind, beginning with Adam and Eve as king and queen. God gave them a great commission to rule over the creation, to multiply and fill the creation, and to reflect his image in the creation. And yet, the creation is not primarily about man and woman. It is primarily about the glory of God, the fame of his name. God is the center of all things from which all good emanates. And the spread of God's glory doesn't exclude people. It includes people. We are invited to celebrate God's goodness with God. We're created to enjoy relationship with him and participate in the display of his glory. The decision of Adam and Eve to turn away from God and choose their own way resulted in the corruption of both mankind and the creation. We are no longer purely in the image of God. We are now in the corrupted, fallen image of Adam. And from Cain and Abel through the flood to the Tower of Babel, Genesis 4 through 11 reveals the depravity of the human heart. We are a corrupt race in need of salvation. What's the plan? How does God restore a righteous human kingdom on earth with a people dedicated to walking with him and imaging his glory? We have creation and fall. What's the plan for redemption? Remember in our first lesson, I introduced the kingdom motif as a theme that runs through the whole of the Bible. And there's six elements to the motif. Kingdom requires a king, a people, a land, a palace, a covenant, and a mediator. And we could trace the theological development of each of these ideas, each of these elements, through the Pentateuch. I especially want us to keep in mind covenant as the statement of the relationship between the great king and his vassal people. When I talk about covenant, instead of saying that God made a covenant, I'll usually use the terminology, God cut covenant. That's the literal translation for the phrase to make a covenant, pretty much any time it occurs in your Old Testament. Covenants were not made in the ancient Near East, they were cut. An animal was killed, and the vassal was required to make a self-imprecatory oath, that is to bring a curse on himself if he were to break faith with his suzerain. He was saying, let what has been done to this animal be done to me if I break covenant with you, my king. In our day, we tend to just use signatures and a stamp. When you get married, you sign the marriage certificate along with the minister or the civil clerk and a couple of witnesses. That makes the marriage covenant legal. A shotgun wedding would add in the element of the curse. That's when the daddy of the bride stands in the back with a shotgun to make sure the groom goes through with it and to give him a visible reminder of what's going to come down on him if he breaks faith with daddy's little girl. The dead animal and the shotgun serve the same purpose. Here's an example of a ratification ceremony or cutting of covenant from an ancient Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaty between Asher Nirari V of Assyria and Mati Elu of Arpad. This is what the tablet says. So after decapitating a lamb, this text was to be read. This head is not the head of a lamb. It is the head of Mata'ilu, 
It is the head of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land. If Mati'ilu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is torn off and its knuckle placed in its mouth, the head of Mati'ilu be torn off and his sons. This shoulder is not the shoulder of a spring lamb. It is the shoulder of Mati'ilu. It is the shoulder of his sons, his officials, and the people of this land. If Mati'ilu sins against this treaty, so may, just as the shoulder of this spring lamb is torn out, and the shoulder of Mati'ilu, of his sons, his officials, and the people of his land, be torn out. So you get the picture. The covenant is written out, and now Mati'ilu, the vassal, not the suzerain, but the lower king, has to go through this ceremony where they take a lamb and cut its head off and then rip its leg out and shove the leg in the mouth. And then Mati'ilu is supposed to stand there and say, If I break covenant with you, O great king, then let it be done to me, and not just me, but my sons and all my officials, what was done to this lamb. Rip my arms out and stick them in my mouth. That was That's the symbol. And when that was done, when the sacrifice is made and the oath is taken, now the written covenant is legal. It's been ratified. Now, the great king does not communicate covenant directly to the vassal people. He uses a covenant mediator to do that. There are six primary covenant mediators in the Bible, and we call them prophets, but they're a special kind of prophet. Most biblical prophets are not covenant mediators. God does not use them to establish covenant. Most biblical prophets are covenant lawsuit prophets. They bring lawsuit. So Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, all these guys were calling people back to covenant faithfulness in relationship to the existing covenant. They're not the ones who established the covenant. That happens only on a rare occasion through a very small number of prophets. Of the six covenant mediator prophets in the Bible, we can divide them into two categories. There are those through whom God established common grace covenant, that is, covenant with all of humankind, and those through whom God established special grace covenant, that is, covenant with a special group of people. And there are only two common grace covenant mediators. Both of them are present in the ground we've already covered from Genesis 1 through 11. So who do you think they are? Who are the two covenant mediators through whom God has made covenant with all of humankind? Yeah, if, you, if you're thinking of Adam and Noah, you're right. Adam and Noah are our first covenant mediator prophets. Through them, God establishes covenant with everybody. Through them, there is a common grace kingdom. Like it or not, all humanity is either in covenant with their creator God or in covenant rebellion against their creator. There is a common grace kingdom that includes all people. The next four covenant mediators in the Bible are going to bring covenant from God for a special group of people. We can call this special grace kingdom. Do you know who those four prophets are? When you think about covenant in the Bible, who do you think of? Who brings covenant? Abraham, Moses, David, and Jesus. So there's the uh, Abrahamic covenant. We often, often call it the promise, the Mosaic covenant, or the law the Davidic covenant, which is really with a very special group of people. It's just for his line that the Messiah will come 
through him and his house established forever. And then, of course, Jesus, who brings new covenant, the covenant of grace. So now God has moved into the divide and conquer approach. Instead of addressing all humanity at once, he's going to focus in on a special group. It's the next phase in God's plan of redemption. To this point in Genesis, God has worked with everybody, all of humankind. But after the Tower of Babel incident, God separated humanity out from one another, confusing them in their pursuit to establish a name for themselves. The vassals would rebel. They would rule the kingdom of heaven and earth as originally intended by the suzerain king, but they would do so on their own terms, lifting themselves up to the same level as the king of kings, not under him, but equal to him. They would make a name for themselves. It's the voice of humanism. That voice is not new. The voice of humanism rejects that there is anything inherently wrong with the human race. It rejects the authority of God. It claims independence from God, and it claims the right to rule equal with God. God confused this attempted rebellion, and he scattered the people apart into separate tribes, languages, and communities in order to contain their sense of pride and self-sufficiency. And now, rather than offering redemption through a common mediator to all humankind, God begins to work through one nation. He will make his capital among a special people whose purpose will be to bless all the nations of the earth. And he's going to do this with a people that are not a people, a nation that is not a nation. He's going to do this with an older man and an older woman who've not been able to have any children. Genesis 12 begins the story of redemption, and it starts with the call of Abraham. Surveying Abraham's story creates this frustration in me at how little information we have on the life of the father of our faith. One Harry Potter novel gets 900 pages for one year in the life of a fictitious magician. And all we have are 10 or 12 pages for the full life of Abraham. I'd love to know more. I want more information. Wouldn't it be great to have a book on the life of Abraham written by someone who was there with him? I guess we're going to have to wait to talk to him in person. For now, I'm reminded of how important what we have is. God has given us this for a reason. When you read the story of Abraham from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, it takes you through a series of events that are going to cover his whole lifetime. You're just kind of moving from event to event to event, and it includes dialogue, and it's often between Abraham and God. And what is said and what are done are both very important, inviting us to close attention. And since we're doing an overview, I'm going to focus in only on four critical events. These are four covenant events in the life of Abraham. We'll do two in this lesson and then two in the next lesson. The four events are the promise made in Genesis 12, the covenant cut in Genesis 15, the covenant sign in Genesis 17, and the covenant test in Genesis 22. So promise made and covenant cut in this lesson starting with the promise made in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Let's read those three verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house 
to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this is a great gospel. I mean, can you imagine this? Abraham, if you trust me, I will give you descendants, land, provision, protection. And not only am I going to give you all your heart desires, not only am I going to protect you from your enemies, I'm also going to make your life matter. I'm going to bless the nations through you. Descendants, land, provision, protection, and purpose. What would you say to such a gospel? God's plan ties back to the previous history. In chapter 11, man reaches up to make a name for himself. Here, God reaches down and lifts Abraham up, telling him, I will make your name great. God is going to give Abraham a name. His desire is not to keep us pressed down, but to lift us up in relationship with him. We make our name by walking with God, not by breaking away from God. And along with the reference to name, the reference to nations links us back. You know, in in chapter 10, we have the table of nations. And so that's all of humankind descended from Noah, either from Ham or Sham or uh, Japheth. These nations are the ones who sought to make a name for themselves, to make themselves like God. And to these sinful people, this is the plan, the descendants of Abraham are going to be a blessing. So through Abraham, the line of Eve lives on. So Abraham believes. Abraham, he does have to respond in faith. He accepts this gospel, and he sets out to the promised land. The first thing he does is to build an altar and to worship Yahweh. It's a wonderful sign of his commitment to God. It also seems to contain a sense of expectant optimism. It's like, here I am, God. You know, I've arrived. I'm in the promised land. Now what? What's next? Let's get started on getting the blessing and being a blessing. But what happens next in the story? Well, life happens. There's famine in the land. And Abraham has to go down to Egypt to find food. And there he's afraid, so he hides the fact that Sarah's his wife. And far from being a blessing to the nations, he becomes a curse because God sends a plague on Egypt to protect Sarah. And then they get kicked out of Egypt and they return to Canaan, probably a bit humbled. Abraham does build an altar again. He's still worshiping Yahweh. But then there's this separation between him and Lot. Lot's not so focused on worshiping Yahweh, and he eventually gets mixed up with Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has to go on a rescue mission to save him. And then Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed, and Lot's wife dies. The gospel given to Abraham reminds me of the gospel offered to all of us and how it often works. It is really great news. God has promised us a land. He's promised us heaven, a home, a place, inclusion. He's promised to bless us. He offers us abundant life. He gives us purpose that we can be part of his plan in blessing other people. And God will cause all of it to come true. But that doesn't at all mean it's going to be easy. Life with God, it starts with a wonderful gospel but life is going to be hard. There's going to be suffering. And I wonder if he let me in on how hard serving him was going to be 
whether I ever would have had the courage to set out. So I'm I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad he waits. Um, but I, I began a bit naive. I feel like Abraham. He started out with all this hope, but then he began to struggle. This brings us to chapter 15 and the cutting of covenant. And this is maybe 10 years after God's call came to Abraham. And he still doesn't have children. And this is a very important chapter. So let's focus in. We're going to go through all the verses of Genesis 15, covenant cut. There's a pattern to the text. First, God speaks. Then Abraham speaks. Then God speaks again. Then in the middle of the chapter, we're told Abraham believes. After that, the pattern's repeated. God speaks. Abraham speaks. God speaks. So we'll start with the first half, and we'll start with God speaking. This is verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. It's a short summary of the promise from Genesis 12, blessing and protection. But when Abraham hears it, he immediately thinks of child. You know, that is the top of his mind. That's the number one blessing that he's waiting on. And now we're going to read Abraham's response and consider whether this sounds like faith to you. Does it sound like Abraham is trusting God? And this is verses 2 to 3. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Does that sound like faith to you? When I ask this question in class, I get both responses. I get yes, I get no. It's difficult to tell the state of Abraham's faith at this point. It doesn't sound like he's trusting God for descendants if he expects to have to adopt his servant as his heir. But you could imagine that Abraham's complaint is a pleading to God for the how. How, God? I want to believe you, God. I want to believe you're going to do this, but how? You gave a promise, but my life reality is not matching up with the promise. You know, when this happens to us, when we think we know how things should go, we have expectations, and they don't go that way, it can really throw us off. It disorients us. You know, how do I bring these two things together? How do I bring my expectations of God and God's promises together with the mess or the reality of life? Now, Abraham could say to God, you, you said I'd have a child, but it's been 10 years. My wife is old and barren. How, Lord? I don't get it. It's not happening. What's going on? And at this point of disorientation, when our expectations don't match reality, unbelief shuts God off. Unbelief becomes bitter and it turns from God. Belief in the same situation cries out to God. So the father in Mark 9, whose sons possessed, cries out to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, there's some weakness in there. There's some struggle. Which is it for Abraham? Is this disbelief, a turning from God, or is it a cry of struggling faith? One of the challenges interpreting biblical narrative is that we often get dialogue and action without narration. We're not told anything about what's going on inside Abraham's heart or in his mind, and we're not told what God thinks about Abraham's response. We're supposed to follow the story and draw conclusions based on what God says or what God does. 
Because God responds not only to words and actions, but also to what he sees in the person's heart. This happens all the time when God is interacting with people. For example, after the miracles at the Passover, when many believed, why didn't Jesus entrust himself to those people? Well, John tells us he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. He sees past the words or the profession into the heart. There's a great example in Luke 1 with the parallel between Zacharias, father of John the Baptist, and Mary, mother of Jesus. So Gabriel shows up to Zacharias and says, your wife is going to have a child. And Zacharias says, how can this be? The same Gabriel shows up to Mary and tells her she's going to have a child. Even more shocked, I imagine, Mary also responds, how can this be? Gabriel then strikes Zacharias dumb for daring to ask, how can this be? You know, he's not going to get to talk for nine months. But to Mary, she asks, how can this be? And the response is like, good question. Let me explain. Now, see, she's approved. She's not rebuked. You can be sure that Luke is not unaware of the situational irony he's just put together in the narrative side by side. He includes both stories in the same chapter. And we're supposed to notice the similarity and then that difference. We're supposed to conclude that the difference between Zacharias and Mary is not their words, it's their heart. I believe it's a way of pointing out the faith of Mary. So how's God going to respond to Abraham, with rebuke or with explanation? Well, let's read what God says. This is in verses 4 and 5. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. I love this. It's like God's putting his arm around Abraham, and he leads him outside, and he says, Look up into that sky. You see those stars? So shall your descendants be. It's not really an explanation, is it? You know, and this is, this is also classic God. God doesn't tell Abraham how it's going to be or when it's going to be. He's not really answering the question that's posed. Abraham wants the details, but he's not getting the details. God is just saying, trust me, it's going to work out as I say it will. It's not an explanation. It's an illustration, and it's encouragement to help Abraham keep going, to keep trusting. So how then does Abraham respond? Verse 6, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. If we're not sure about the state of Abraham's heart in verse 2, we are now. So Abraham believes, and that faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. Abraham does not do any righteousness. He simply trusts in the promise of God, and because of that trust, God declares Abraham righteous. This promise is about having a child, but not only about having a child. It's about having a child through whom the nations will be blessed. You know, this is God's plan for the nations. And we don't know how clear all of that was to Abraham. We do know he is being asked to trust God's plan of salvation. He's being asked to trust in the promise, and he does, and it's reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, in the rest of the chapter, we're going to get the pattern repeated. God speaks, Abraham speaks, God speaks again. 
So verse 7, God speaks. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. This is that next main blessing given to Abraham in the promise of Genesis 12. So not only are you going to have descendants, you're also going to get land. Consider Abram's response. Again, does this sound like faith? Verse 8. He said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? Yes or no, is that faith? You know, it sounds the same, which is really kind of strange because we just had this clear affirmation of faith in verse 6. So we expect Abraham to be good with the plan. But it's so human. You know, no matter how real our faith is, we have doubts, we have struggles, we want to know how. And that's the question Abraham seems to be asking again. He looks around him, and all he sees are Hittites and Amorites and Canaanites, and they have land. They have the towns and the vineyards. What does Abraham have? Nothing. Well, he's got a lot of possessions. He has no land. He's moving from well to well to water his flocks. And at the end of his life, he's going to have to barter with a Hittite to buy a place to bury Sarah. So Abraham again is asking, how? I don't see it, God. How? When? And again, God does not rebuke Abraham for his questions. He encourages Abraham. But it's going to be with more than an illustration. God's going to do something very special. So you know how people are constantly asking Jesus questions, and Jesus rarely answers the question. He responds to the question, but you're like, well, where did that come from? What does that have to do anything? Why did he say that? It's like when the Jesus told that young man, Go and sell everything you have, and then come back and follow me. He's like, where did that come from? It's because Jesus hears more than the question. It's more than the words we say. Jesus hears what's behind the question. He sees the hidden motives of the heart. He's aware of the deeper issue. I think we have that with God here. Abraham is asking, how How can I know I'll get the land, get a son? And part of the how is looking around at the outer circumstances of life. Now, Sarah is old, the land's already populated, but part of the how deals with our own inner questions. Like, do I have what it takes to remain faithful? You know, how can I know that I'm going to live up, that I'll be approved? I hear your promise, God, but what about me? How can I know that I'm going to remain faithful in order to have the son, in order to inherit the land? How do I know I'm going to make the right decisions or do your will? And again, I don't know how much of that was clear to Abraham. you kind of on the top level of his mind and his thinking. It, it is deep in the reality of the human heart, our insecurities of who we are. You know, what if I don't have true faith? What if I can't keep this up? What if I mess it up? I've already got strikes against me. You know, I, nobody really knows how messed up I am. What if the mass drops? What if I cross the line and it becomes public? You know, have you ever felt that? What if I get uncovered? What if I have to stand naked and ashamed? In answering Abraham's how question, God is going to, he's going to let him know what's going to happen to the inhabitants of the land. God is going to solve the outward circumstances. But this answer goes so much deeper to addressing the self-doubts, the weakness, the sin that's implicit in Abraham's question. This is God speaking again, and this is really um, going to be most of the chapter. It's verses 9 through 21. Let's deal with it in two parts. So first, verses 9 through 16. This is the part that would have been 
quite clear to the ancient Near Eastern reader. They're going to know what's going on. So 9 to 16. So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite to the other. But he didn't cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell on him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they'll come out with many possessions. As for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Okay, so the answer is clear. It's not really desirable that you're going to get the land. It's just going to take 400 years for your descendants to be able to populate it. So that's a tough answer. So Abraham actually is getting some of the details with this answer. Um, but then the whole business of cutting the animals and all that, that's, that's all strange to us. None of it's normal. But it was very clear to the ancient readers. They, they recognize exactly what's going on, and, and maybe you do too. Now, this is the cutting of covenant. God is having Abraham set up an oath ceremony. He's cut the animals and he's placed them half on one side and half on the other side. You know, and that's, that's normal. It gets confirmed in verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And remember that Hebrew word translated in your Bible as made a covenant is literally cut a covenant. So Abraham is setting up this cutting of covenant ceremony. Does God need to enter into a legal agreement with Abraham? Well, no, God made a promise. That promise stands. God doesn't need to to ratify his own word. God is condescending to use a known human form of agreement, a suzerain vassal treaty, to communicate something to Abraham. This is not for God. This is for Abraham and for us. The first part's known to them, not unusual. The second part is where it gets weird even for the ancient reader. This is not supposed to happen. Verses 17 to 21 don't really make sense even to them. Let's read that. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So what's weird about this? The animals are cut and ready, laid out on a path. Who's supposed to walk through the pieces? Abraham. By his action, the vassal communicates to the great king, if I break covenant with you, great king, then let it be done to me what has been done to these animals. But instead, we have a smoking pot and a flaming torch passing through the pieces, and that's what's weird. Why a smoking pot and a flaming torch? And why doesn't Moses explain this? What does he expect us to think about this? Well, then we ask, well, does the context help us? Where do we see smoke and fire in the books of Moses? Well, we see smoke and fire in the pillars that lead people through the wilderness. We see smoke and fire at the burning bush. We see smoke and fire on Mount Sinai during the cutting of covenant with Israel. 
And then we get it. Smoke and fire in the Pentateuch symbolizes the presence of God. God passes through the pieces. Abraham's not even involved. He's put to sleep off on the side. And the great king passes through. That never happens. In essence, God is declaring, if you break covenant with me, then let me die. Matthew 27 describes the fulfillment of that proclamation. The great king follows through with his word. From the sixth hour to the ninth, there was darkness on the land. Hanging on the cross, Jesus gave up his spirit. The temple curtain was torn in two, and there was an earthquake, and the soldiers were fair, and the soldiers were terrified. They were frightened. If you break covenant with me, I die. That's what God said. That's what Jesus did. He took the curse. And that's how you know that the promise of God is sure. Because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. The first basic question of covenant asks, what makes me acceptable to God? Or what makes me righteous enough to be in relationship with a holy God? And let's think of this in terms of grace and law. In this sense, grace is what God does. Law is what you do. So think of law as the do's and the don'ts. They're the stipulations of covenant. And there's a lot of that kind of law, not just in the Old Covenant, but also in the New Covenant. It's all over the place. Love your neighbor. Be devoted to prayer. Give to those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up. Love your enemy. You know, these are the stipulations of covenant, the do's and the don'ts, the law. Grace is God's part. Law is your part. So let's put this into percentages. What percentage of being approved by God relies on grace, God's part? And what percentage of being approved by God relies on you, on your obedience or fulfilling of the covenant expectations, the stipulations? What's your part? What's God's part? I'm speaking at a youth conference this week, and I asked the question to this group of Christian teenagers, and they gave me a lot of possibilities. Um, So they gave me 50-50, 50% grace, 50% law. They gave me 99% versus 1%. 100%, 0%, 90%, 10%. So which is it? What's the answer for Abraham? You know, how much was him and how much was God? Well, we go back up to verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. What was Abraham doing during the cutting of covenant? Nothing. You know, he was in a deep sleep as passive as a person can be without being dead. The righteousness you need to make you acceptable to God is not something you can do. It is only something you can receive. It is passive to you. It's active to God. The answer is 100% grace, 0% law. You cannot contribute to making yourself acceptable to God. Either you are completely by the grace of Christ or something depends on you. You know, just that 1%, we'll just go 99 and 1, that depends on you, you're going to mess that up. You're going to ruin the 1% by your thoughts, by your words, by your deeds. You will not keep covenant with God. Paul nails this home in his letter to the Romans. 
and I'm not going to go all through that right now. I'll refer you to the Observe the Word podcast on Romans if you want to get a more thorough argument of our righteousness by grace through faith, that it's 100% grace, 0% law, thoroughly covered there. If you just want to jump into the main point, you can go to Romans 3, 21 to 30, or also Romans 4, which is where Paul spends a whole chapter explaining this verse, Genesis 15, 6, as, as the precedent. Abraham is the precedent for the new covenant assertion that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. It cannot be part grace and part works. It is either all grace or it is not grace. As Paul says in Romans eleven six. if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Looking back over Genesis 15, I love how the literary structure of the story emphasizes truth about faith and grace. Faith is the human part of being made acceptable before God. So if we say there's anything you have to do, it's you have to receive the gift. Faith is necessary. We must trust God and receive his plan of salvation. That's clear. It's right in the center of the text. Abraham believed and was declared righteous. Yet on either side of Genesis 15, 6, you know, we see that Abraham's faith doesn't look that impressive. You know, it looks very human. The strength of the passage is not in the faith of man, but in the grace of God. God's grace comes at the end of the story and anchors the whole. So imagine two guys dared to go out onto an icy lake, and one maybe jumps off a pier onto the ice with great confidence, and the other one, he just he gets out there, but he crawls out with fear and trepidation. Either way, both guys have succeeded in expressing their trust that the ice is going to hold them up. They're putting their faith in the ice. But if that ice is only a couple of inches thick, confident faith versus weak faith just doesn't matter. Both guys are going through. What matters is not the strength of their faith. What matters is the strength of the ice. When you jump into God's arms, the question is not, how confidently did you get there? The question is, how strong are those arms? How committed is God to his own promise? And he is this committed. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God has declared, come to me and believe you are safe. I have declared that if you break covenant with me, I will die. You are safe in my promise. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Pentateuch, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.